Open the precious Bible with me to Isaiah 42. Isaiah chapter 42, where we have 25 verses that we would like to cover in the time that we have for this morning service. God comforted and warned His people that His Messiah would save elect Jews and Gentiles and crush Jew and Gentile enemies in this chapter. I hope that you read it last evening and were able to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ very specifically given in verses 1 through 9. And by the time we get to the end of those nine verses, verses 10 through 12, should be our happy privilege and great joy to sing and shout His praise. Because the scriptures are going to call on us to do so. I've given you a brief outline of the chapter already. I'll not repeat that. This chapter is the third in the second half of the book of Isaiah. It's the third chapter in the comforting section of God in the 40s, where God is comforting His people after a great deal of prophesied judgment in chapters 1 through 39. To comfort is to strengthen. There's a fort in there. To comfort is to strengthen, morally or spiritually, to encourage, to hearten, to inspirit, to incite. I would love to be incited this morning. To minister delight or pleasure to, to gladden, cheer, please, and entertain is all included in the word comfort. Let's be comforted by God's word about His Son for us Gentiles. For us Gentiles is Isaiah 42. I'd like you to look back at Isaiah 6 just for a minute. Lately, I mean in the last couple of hours, I believe that it would help my efficiency with you and your efficiency with me if we go back and remember a prophecy that was given to us in chapter 6. It'll help us understand the latter part of this chapter. Isaiah 6 you know the first eight verses are the vision that Isaiah had of God's glory. And God said, who shall we send? Who shall I send? And Isaiah said, send me. I want to go and be your servant. And then we have his commission as a minister in verse 9. And he said, that is God speaking to Isaiah, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten, as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. What I want you to remember from Isaiah 6 that we've already learned 
verses 9 through 12, that severe blindness was coming upon the Jews. And that severe blindness would cause them to hear but not understand, see but not perceive. They would not be converted. They would not be converted. This is all going to help you. They would not be converted. And how long would that last? Until after 70 AD. And it still lasts to this day when he would destroy them and leave them utterly desolate. Back to Isaiah 42. We just want to be efficient and know where we're headed toward in the latter part of Isaiah 42. Now you should be excited about these first nine verses. And they should get your attention. And there should be a response. And if you don't have a response, honestly, honestly and lovingly, how are you saved? Because you believe some body of doctrine or some parts of our body of doctrine? That isn't evidence of salvation. What's the evidence of salvation? A changed life that loves the Son of God, that falls at the Savior's feet and wants to grab His ankles and praise Him with a loud voice. Because you love the Savior. God loves His Son, and God has honored His Son, and He loves and honors all those that love and honor His Son. And that shouldn't confuse you. He loves His Son, and we want to love His Son. The first section of this chapter is verses 1 through 4. God identified Messiah as His servant. When I use the word Messiah, I use it in my outline quite a bit, and I use it with you a little bit in Isaiah, and it's only in the Bible a couple times. But when it's translated into Greek, it certainly isn't in the Bible a couple times, because Messiah is an Old Testament Hebrew word. What is that word when it comes from Hebrew into Greek into English? It's Christ. And you know how many times Christ is in the New Testament, or you know that it's a lot of times. And so I use Messiah. I want you to understand these terms. Messiah is the anointed one of God, the special servant and elect person that God sent to be our Savior. Messiah equals Christ. That is his office of the anointed one of God. Jesus is his personal name. Jesus of Nazareth. Jehoshua. Jehovah is salvation, is his name. Lord is his title as the ruler of all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, if we believed in mantras and stamping our feet, we would just say that for five or ten minutes. But we don't do that because the Lord expects us to operate our minds and not be like the Athenians or the Ephesians who for two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. How much was Diana excited by their worship? There is no Diana. We have the Lord of glory. I read to you the first four verses. God identified Messiah as his servant. This anointed one that's coming, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, is called God's servant here and his elect. Behold, behold, stop and look. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. 
till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Amen, amen and amen. amen. The desire of all nations was going to come, and the isles, as we sang in that last song, that last song should have Isaiah 42 at the top. The author just didn't know it, I guess, or the Presbyterians didn't know it to put together that hymnal. And for those of you in audio land, we sing from three, four different books. And that's just one of them. Do you like the words, He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. Amen. Let me tell you something about me. And you can embrace it, because it's true about you. Right. I fail, and I get discouraged. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. Amen. With apostles like he had, I'd be discouraged. You're better than his apostles. If I had to go to the cross, I'd be discouraged. He didn't. He wasn't. And he wouldn't. Because who was upholding him? Whom I uphold. Oh, yes. Our Savior is a great and a mighty Savior. And we want to celebrate and worship him today. Verse 1. The words should be familiar to you because they're found somewhere else in the Bible. Matthew chapter 12. Let's just go ahead and turn over there and read those verses again. It won't hurt us. If the Lord thought they were worth putting in both Testaments, then we can read them twice. Matthew chapter 12. And I'm going to start at verse 14. Matthew 12, 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. The Pharisees of the Jews, the straightest sect of the Jews' religion, the most conservative denomination of the Jews, wanted to destroy Jesus Christ the Lord. Verse 15, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all and charged them that they should not make him known. Remember that 16th verse. And charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, in the 42nd chapter, I'm telling you, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. The isles shall wait for his law. In his name shall the Gentiles trust. We have all four verses of Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, right here in Matthew chapter 12. Now the Lord has arranged for greater efficiency by having a young man stand in this pulpit a few minutes ago and explain to you that he was speaking about the words of God from Psalm 119, verses 137 through 144, where the words of God, the truth of God, the message of God is called His judgments. So that you can, listen, do you know how much efficiency that just saved us? Because we have judgment in verse 1, we have judgment in verse 3, and we have judgment in verse 4. 
And that judgment is the equity and truth of God's words. His judgments. Judgment is not always pounding and punishing. That's, that's a weak explanation for it, and it's not even the most po- common in the Bible. Judgment, when we say, he used good judgment, we're not saying, he really pounded his wife, or he really pounded his dog. We're not thinking of hurting anyone or anything. We're thinking that he used wisdom and equity and justice and fairness in solving a dilemma. He used good judgment. Oh, does the Lord Jesus have any of that? Good judgment? He's filled with it. And he's, he brought it to us Gentiles. And any good judgment that we have today for any part of our lives is because he brought it to the aisles and the aisles were waiting for it because the desire of all nations came. Amen. These are wonderful words. These words describe the relationship of God and Jesus like John 1, 1 through 18. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Look at how close they are in that first verse. You know, and you should know, that that first clause, that compound clause, Behold my servant whom I uphold, that's a clause, is enough for a sermon. Behold... My servant, whom I uphold. And we have 25 verses. So I'm getting behind. So let's get through these verses. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. The servant is clearly Messiah, the Christ of God, the Son of David, Jesus our Lord. When we get over to Isaiah 52 and 53, Jesus is called God's servant. My righteous servant shall justify many. And passages that you know are referring to Jesus Christ, maybe more than this one, you know that it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. It's clearly Him. Almighty God conceived Jesus and Mary, raised Him from the dead, and promoted Him over the universe. Jesus is called God's elect, for God chose Him. Did you notice that here it's called elect, in Matthew it's called chosen. And so there you have a definition for an English word, and you don't need a dictionary for it. You just need to compare spiritual things with spiritual. God chose Jesus out of the nation of the Jews like He chose David, and Psalm 89 tells us that. God delighted in Jesus of Nazareth. And so it shouldn't surprise us a bit when it says, In whom my soul delighteth. God gave the Holy Spirit to Jesus for a great ministry that would reach to the Gentiles. God gave the Spirit to Jesus without measure. John chapter 3 and verse 34. Here it says, I have put my Spirit upon Him. First person to the third person. It's going to get better. I have have put my Spirit upon Him. Speaking about a third party. It's going to get better. Just remember that. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. My son is going to bring the truth of my reign of righteousness in the universe and good judgment, equity, fairness, justice to the Gentiles. And so we have that word three times in these four verses, and we've just been saved a great deal of trouble. I don't have to turn you anywhere because you were already turned there. And so God is going to bring that to Gentiles lost In the blindness and confusion of their minds, they're going to be given the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, 
and all the equity, fairness, righteousness, and good judgment that it contains. It's not just, I am going to go destroy the Gentiles. I am going to go destroy the Gentiles. I am going to go destroy the Gentiles. It's, I'm going to give the Gentiles something they've never had before. And if you read about our ancestors, you don't have to. You just have to read about the relatives you have today in America. They don't know good judgment. Let's not even get off on that subject. But they don't know good judgment like the Lord brought us in His Son. Verse 2. You know that more could be said. Will you please have mercy on me? We are here for Him today. Do you know this glorious man? Do you know my king? That's my king. Do you know the man Christ Jesus? The universe is all about him. And that's why we're here together today. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. These are wonderful words. And if your heart is right, they should be repeated as they are in Matthew chapter 12. What do they mean? He shall not cry nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. You'll remember that I pointed out a verse back there in Matthew chapter 12 that you ought to pay attention to when he said to those that he healed, don't go around telling everyone. It wasn't a sin if they did. He was just advising them not to because he was not a self-promoter. He was not lifting up himself nor promoting himself in this world so that those that followed him followed him by the operation of God in their souls. He was not a promoter. You know, men in our world are promoters that have a great charismatic personality, a great verbal ability of moving people. They can get a following, and there's no work of God done, and there's a lot of pastors that way. But the Lord Jesus didn't do it that he shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street, unless he was preaching. Because he didn't promote himself. When he sat in the edge of a ship and asked them to push it off the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there were 5,000 men plus women and children, he could address them all. He knew how to lift up his voice. But he never did it to promote himself. When men wanted to publish his fame justifiably for miracles, he discouraged all such. And it's written through the Gospels, and it shouldn't surprise you, he didn't want to be promoted that way. He wanted to be promoted for the truth's sake, not just because he could heal. Isn't that a difference from faith healers to... Well, there's no faith involved in their healing, and there's no healing involved in their faith. I'm sorry for even saying those two words together. The Lord Jesus was so different. Our Lord's ministry was gentle and humble, without ordinary fanfare or self-promotion. The Jews in both Testaments, especially in His time, were given to gross ostentation. They'd, blow, they'd have trumpets blown. They had their own little praise band before they were going to drop an offering in the temple boxes. The, that's what the Bible says about them. They're wearing Scripture in a box on their forehead. It's, it's hard for us to even imagine that. Well, just go to a convent or go meet a priest. They want to wear those long robes, and they had phylacteries on their arms and and lengthened borders. But not the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was out of the backwoods of Nazareth and Galilee, and He didn't want to be promoted that way. What a lesson for us to reduce ourselves by wise effort 
no matter our achievements. Do you hear that? What a wise lesson for us. Let every Christian be known only for good works, not for any self-promotion. Let our things published, like books or websites, limit and reduce persons to a bare minimum, like our website always has been. We try to hide the best that we can, because it's all about Him. Verse 3, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Jesus is going to preach the pure gospel of God and convey the proper sense and understanding of everything about the worship of God and how to live the God-pleasing life, which he did. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he corrected the Pharisees' abuse of the, in, on the Sermon on the Mount. He was always putting things in their proper place, their proper order and priority, and he brought that kind of judgment forth. But you ask me, what does it mean, a bruised reed shall he not break? A reed is a water weed, and we have a bruised one, and he won't break it. That's about as pitifully weak as you can imagine. Smoking flax is a candle or a wick of a lamp after you have squeezed it out. It smokes, it stinks, it has no value, it's irritating. Smoking flax, he will not quench. He won't dump water on it. Who, oh, I just gave it away. What are these bruised reeds and smoking flax? They're the weak children of God. He would not break them by being too hard and harsh on them. Oh, trust me, his enemies, as you heard last Lord's Day so well in the first service, his enemies got the brunt of his breaking and his quenching effect on them with his same speech. But toward his children, it was comfort. It was encouragement. It was love. Him with Mary and Martha in John chapter 11, what more would you want? Him with the woman of Samaria? Woman, he it is that speaketh with thee. Just lit her. She runs straight back to the city and brings all the men out to hear Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. A bruised reed is a weak, a weak child of God. He won't break them by being unnecessarily hard. Do you remember what he said about the Pharisees? They love to heap burdens on men's backs, though they will not lift a finger. And the smoking flax shall he not quench. He's not going to douse water on your little fire that has basically gone out. Just like Adam presented to us from Psalm 119, I am small, I am pitiful, I am like a a, a bottle in the smoke because a a bottle in the smoke, and many other verses he read to us, the words of God strengthen us because Jesus Christ is behind those words and God is behind those words to encourage and strengthen us. We don't want any smoking flax to go out in this church. Every scorner will help you to the door and will push your car. You won't even need to turn it on. We'll get it off our property. Every fool that thinks you know anything against God's word, we don't have any time for you or interest in you. But... If you're a child of God and you feel like you're just smoking flax and you're just a broken, you're just a bruised reed, we will not break you nor quench you. We want to fan you back into full life. And we hope that you want to do that for us. And let's all do that together.
consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Let's take those bruised little reeds and smoking flax and stir it up. Do you ever feel that way? Adam told you where to go. Listen, I wanted to jump up on my chair and shout out that that was inspired psychotherapy. If people would have listened to Adam Eastland for his 10 minutes or so, the craft and occupation of pharmaceuticals would have taken a serious blow on Monday. All these people taking drugs because they can't deal with life, he told you how to deal with life. He did. If every spouse would do what Adam said, they'd have a happy marriage. And it doesn't really matter what their spouse does. They would have a happy marriage because they'd be married to the Lord and they'd have his word strengthening them all the time. I can't get off track any farther than that, but I wanted to jump up and yell the words, inspired psychotherapy. Do you know how much counseling there would be left if people trusted God's words and went to them every time they were in trouble? There wouldn't be any reason to counsel. Because your problems are solved with God's word and God being with you. All of us together have never had problems that equal David's problems. David had gargantuan problems and a very large number of them in his family, in his friends, in his church, in his nation, in his enemies. But look at, look at the resolution. And the Lord, the Lord brought that when he brought forth judgment unto truth. He brought forth the true way of looking at everything in life and the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the just dealings of God with men. Jesus brought it. Verse 4, He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Now see, if we read ahead to verse 4, you would know what judgment means. Do you see it? He will set judgment in the earth, that's outside of Israel, and the isles shall wait for his law. They're looking for it. They're waiting to hear real truth, real explanation, understanding, equity, justice, in dealing with life, in dealing with God, in knowing him, what he expects of them. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ brought that, and the Gentiles were looking for it. And it's explained here, just like it is in Psalm 119, just like it is in Psalm 19. You know how we sing in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord, the testimonies of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. True, he'll bring forth judgment unto truth. His, his judgments, his way of looking at things, his equity, his fairness, his righteousness, his justice is truth. It is the true resolution to every problem. Thank you, Lord. Jesus would not fail nor be discouraged. What a verse. These are sound bites with sense. Sound bites with sense. He shall not fail. You know, you could, we could call that a sound bite just for the sake of my point here. He shall not fail nor be discouraged. You have never met anyone like that. You have never been that yourself. But Jesus Christ is that. He shall not fail. He will not lose a single one of us. When he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, he won't violate it because he failed or because he got discouraged with you. You get discouraged with him, but he doesn't get discouraged about fulfilling his commission towards you. These are wonderful words. They're shouting words. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till 
because he's going to accomplish this. He has set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. The first verse told us Gentiles. The fourth verse told us the earth, it's the Gentiles. All na- Jesus was the desire of all nations. It brings us to the next section. If you want to think about verses 1 through 4 in detail, I preached it to you a few years ago in John chapter 12, where Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now that didn't mean he was going to burn the world up. That means he was going to bring his gospel into the world, and it was going to turn the world upside down. There was a new world system brought in by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the, the religion of Christianity. And remember, we spent weeks and weeks and weeks, too many, on John chapter 12, verses 31 through 33. But let's get to this second section, verses 5 through 9. I read to you, God foretold that Messiah was for us Gentiles. And look what's stuck right in the middle. Thus saith God the Lord. He that created the heavens and stretched them out. He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it. He that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. This is the God of all creation and the God of all life. Verse 6, I the Lord have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Amen and amen. Here comes God for us Gentiles at war with us through the Lord Jesus Christ to cure us, save us from idolatry. From idolatry. That is why we have verse 5, which seems a little bit out of place. I could read from 4 to 6, He shall not fail. I, the Lord, have called thee. And I would think that that'd be okay. But verse 5 is there because our God is the creator, God of the universe. And he's coming after Gentiles. And when he sets his judgment for truth in the aisles, it's to cure them of idolatry. And so he's the creator. The breath that we have, he breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life. The spirit, we each have a spirit, a spirit, a human spirit. That spirit is from him. Because see, their idols have no spirit. But he has spirit, and he gave it to his children, and he gave it to all men, and he gave it to animals as well, because all of that power is in the Creator and nowhere else. We can move on from that, you know verse 5. Let's just move on to verse 6, and notice it's now first and second person. Did you see that? I, the Lord, have called him in righteousness? No. It is getting even more intimate of the relationship between God and His Son. I, the Lord, in verse 6, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee. 
That is God and His Son together. The Father honored that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus would call upon the Father, Father, glorify Thy name. The relationship on earth is just wonderful, and we should copy it in every way that we can. He's our Father. He's our Father by being made accepted to Him, acceptable to Him in the Beloved. We've been adopted. We're His children. Let's have that intimate relationship. God's not ashamed of it. Look at, I will, I will with thee. A man, don't ever forget it. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness. What you're going to do is going to display the righteousness of God to the universe. The angels are going to want to look into this transaction. And we're going to get to the transaction in the second service. Yes, I've been a little obscure about the second service. And I trust that it will bless your souls. But it's going to be about the value and the price of the righteousness of Christ being put on you by His death for you. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness. You are going to demonstrate my perfect righteous character to the universe. I'll hold thine hand. I will keep thee. I'm going to give thee for a covenant of the people. The Jews are looking for the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, and the son of David. I'm going to give you to fulfill that covenant. And so we find, like in Luke chapter 2, people like Simeon and Anna waiting for the consolation of Israel because they were waiting for this redemption. Zechariah and Elizabeth were waiting for it. But what else is he going to do? Because that's not going to go over very well. And I don't mean that disrespect. Yes, I do. They disrespected our Savior, and they paid for it dearly 40 years later. They paid for it dearly. And for a light of the Gentiles. See, it's about darkness. Our ancestors were dark. Our ancestors didn't know up from down. They worshipped all kinds of things rather than the living God that was described for us in verse 5. And here the Lord, the Lord Jehovah, capital L-O-R-D, I've called thee in righteousness. Everything God does is righteous, but His plan of salvation in Jesus is most righteous. Amen. To create the dilemma and to create the drama of killing His own Son for His enemies, that is a display of righteousness. We just pop. But we delight in it. Amen. It's called the unspeakable gift right. in 2 Corinthians 9.15. It is called the unsearchable riches of Christ in Ephesians. Embrace the fine intimacy of God and His Son Jesus with the calling, holding, and keeping in this verse. God sent Jesus to fulfill the Jewish covenants. God sent Jesus to be a light of the Gentiles who had spent 4,000 years in terrible darkness. Verse 7, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. We were captives of the devil. We, we followed the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Jehovah foretold Jesus as the light of the world. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. As you heard last Lord's Day, more had already been said about this enlightening ministry. And I'm not going to turn you there, but in in Isaiah chapter 9, we have a description there of light coming to the Gentiles in the regions of Galilee 
in, in Isaiah 9 too. And, and several other chapters, more will be said about it later. More is going to be said about it later in the book of Isaiah. Jesus charged Paul with a deliverance ministry. Go to Acts chapter 26 so that I can share with you a deliverance ministry. And you're going to have to answer, do we have a deliverance ministry in the church of Greenville? Acts chapter 26. Deliverance ministries usually are various forms of mantras performed over a person in various activities to throw the devil out of them so that they can beat some addiction. Paul had a better deliverance ministry. Here we go. Acts chapter 26, and many verses could be read. The Lord Jesus Christ has appeared to him on the road to Damascus. This is the third time in the book of Acts he gives the testimony of his conversion. In verse 15, And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise, and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. The deliverance is by preaching the gospel. When a person hears about the Lord Jesus Christ and they're a true believer on the Lord Jesus Christ, they have enough strength inside them, outside them, at the right hand of God to deliver them from the devil. They need to believe the gospel of the Lord. The devils know Jesus and the devils know Paul and the devils know those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a deliverance ministry. A deliverance from darkness and satanic delusion and leading them that they could be delivered by hearing the gospel and believing it. Back to Isaiah 42. That's bringing them out of prison. It's idolatry. Idolatry was terrible. People stuck with it for years, generations, centuries, and millennia. There were nations that stuck to the same God, though he had never answered a prayer. Satanic delusion is terrible. And so when we get to verse 8, I am the Lord. I just want you to understand why it's there. He's going against the idolatry of the Gentiles of 4,000 years because he's going to send Jesus Christ to the Gentiles to establish judgment in the isles. And judgment is, there's a creator God in the universe that gave you spirit, and that thing doesn't have any. So a thing without spirit, how's it going to help you with spirit? The monotheism of I am that I am. I am the Lord. That is my name. Oh, yes. I've tried to tell you that we can use God because the Bible uses God more than it uses Jehovah. And we can use Almighty God and we can use Heavenly Father and we can use other expressions that the Bible allows us to use. But once in a while we need to drop a name. And it's the name that it's above every name. And it's the name Jehovah. Do you know what he told Moses? When Moses said, listen, when I go back, they're going to say, where have you been for 40 years? And they're not going to believe me. Who, who do I tell them sent me? 
Tell them I am that I am sent you. That is my memorial forever. That's verse 15. 14 is I am that I am. 15 is that's my memorial forever. He loves that name. And we have it thousands and thousands of times in the Bible obscured by the all capital Lord. And I just I want to share this with you. I've shared it in greater detail with a member in the church. We want to use the name Jehovah from time to time, but we want to use it on a proportionate basis comparable to the Bible because we trust the words of the Bible. That if it's, if it's His memorial forever, we don't want to be throwing it out all the time. So we're going to be biblical about it, and then we're going to be as wise as serpents about it. When people hear us using Jehovah exclusively, they'll think we're Jehovah's Witnesses who use it exclusively, and the Bible doesn't. But I've got to explain these words right here to you. He loves that name. Do you believe in God? Well, what does that mean? Is that Allah or Buddha? Who's your God? Vishnu? Do you believe in Jehovah? Well, I believe in Yahweh. Really? Would you show me Yahweh fat? You know, we've been through that before. I love this way that he's setting the stage for a war that he's going to commence with the Gentiles, and it's a good war. Do you know why? Because in all of the slaughter and ruin of the crafts, of the craft and occupation of the idol makers in Ephesus, he pulled us out. Right. And it's going to tell us that. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. I want you to see the importance of this eighth verse stuck in this context as to why he gave us the fifth verse where he said, I am the creator of the universe and I'm not going to give my glory to some little graven image. They didn't create anything. They don't even have spirit in them. I've put spirit in every living thing on the earth. I'm the Lord that stretched out the heavens and I have taken thee, my son, my servant, mine elect. I've chosen you out of the womb of Mary and I will uphold thee and I will take thee by my hand, and I'm going to send you on a special mission, a mission that no angel can accomplish, and I'm going to send you for Gentiles that have been lost for 4,000 years. Right. Praise the Lord. Amen. Be excited about that. I am the Lord. And that mighty God took the Lord Jesus Christ, chose Him out of the people, said He would uphold Him. He the God delights in Him. You're going to bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. You're going to cure them of idolatry. And you're going to save my people out of them. You're going to be a light to them that have been in darkness for 4,000 years. Amen. Do you understand what a Christian nation looks like in the world compared to nations in the past? It's incredible. Right. You say, what do you mean by a Christian... That, just nominally Christian, they look entirely different. Hi, Hayden. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. What a wonderful statement there. Verse 9, Behold, 
the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Jews, my people, Isaiah's preaching, behold, the former things are come to pass. The prophecies God gave in the past, whether it was Genesis chapter 3 about what was going to happen to the woman when she tried to give birth, or whether it was Genesis chapter 16 about how the Arabs were always going to fight among themselves, or whether it's the, you know, as we progress all the way forward, whether it's Assyria and Sennacherib, behold, the former things are come to pass, and I'm now telling you new things. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I'm telling you about some new things that are going to happen in the earth. Get excited about them, and it's the salvation of the Gentiles. Praise His glorious name. And what should be the result? It's verses 10 through 12. It's section 3. Gentiles should praise God's salvation. Listen to these words. This should describe you. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and His praise from the end of the earth. Ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Just as we sang in number 448 in the Trinity hymnal, these words were in that song. Jesus saves. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Verse 11, let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice. These are the Gentiles scattered all over the place. The villages that Kedar doth inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare His praise in the islands. Amen. Amen. These three verses should describe our level of excitement and passion and praise of the God that sent His servant to save us Gentiles from the blindness of our ancestors and the traditions of our religion. We've been delivered magnificently. By His death on the cross, He saved us legally. By the power of His Spirit and the power of His Word, He regenerated us vitally. And by sending His gospel, He has saved us practically, all by the decrees of God. He was God's elect. We were chosen in Him as God's elect. And He's coming for us soon. And He'll never forsake us. This is how we ought to sing and shout. Now let me just tell you something. I've I've got enough for a sermon on Kedar. Who, what is Kedar? Kedar was a city of the Arabians. Kedar was the second born son of Ishmael. All you quizzers, every time Galatians chapter 4 popped up yesterday, verses 21 through 31, I was having a problem. I had, I had a number of problems yesterday. Is anybody sitting next? Please forgive me. Knows. Kedar was the second-born son of the Arab Ishmael. Ishmael and his mother, Hagar, were cast out because the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Kedar's shouting praise. Do we have a problem in the scriptures? Oh, no, we don't. Kedar was a place of tent dwellers. I have so many verses about... This is just a... I was out of my mind. I was rolling through my house. I mean, running walking and running through my house, shouting to the Lord about this. Kedar was identified by Isaiah as an important city of the Arabians in chapter 21. We've already learned it. Kedar will be connected by Isaiah as a relative of Nebaioth. That's Ishmael's firstborn. Kedar was identified by Ezekiel as a place where Arabians lived. They are called inhabitants of the rock for Arabia Petraea. Arabia Petraea is the area across the Jordan River away from Israel 
where the Christians fled when Cestius brought the Roman legions the first time to encompass Jerusalem. They went across the Jordan River to Pella. Pella is another city of Arabia Petraea. And what does it mean? The rock. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. God saved even some Arabians. You say, are you serious? Even though they were cast out as children of the bondwoman? Yes. Paul spent the first three years of his ministry, may I hear it, in Arabia. You say, where does it tell us more? It doesn't. It just tells us that the first three years of his life, before he, he went, he was at Damascus, he preached, he went into Arabia, he came back to Damascus, he went down to Jerusalem. But he was three years in Arabia, preaching to the cast-off Hagarites, Ishmaelites, Arabians, inhabitants of Kedar. Powerful. That's, that's about as Gentile, I mean, that's as different as you can get. You know what, how we would classify them today, and you know that there are a group of people about 1.2 billion strong that claim Ishmael is their father. I wouldn't want to claim Ishmael as my father, but, but I would biologically if I was in this verse. Right. You know, let's be honest. Our fathers are farther away from the truth than Ishmael was. <laughs> let's just get that out there. A lot farther away from the truth than Ishmael was. Oh, I love that. I love can you look into verse 11 and see grace in all capital letters, G-R-A-C-E, and it's glowing? Grace. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Come to the next section, verses 13 through 15. God would war against Gentile idolaters. Here's the Lord going to war. Verse 13. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar, he shall prevail against his enemies. I have long time holding my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs. And I will make the rivers islands and I will dry up the pools. I am going against the Gentiles. I have left them alone for 4,000 years. Do you know that in the Bible it tells us these things in Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 17, that God winked at those things in times past, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he had sent his servant to be the light of the Gentiles and to stop their blindness and to show them the truth that idolatry was not the true religion. Right. Did it work? Go to, I've already referred to it. The craft in Ephesus about creating little idols to Diana, they had to have a meeting of the tradesmen, and they said, our craft and our occupation is in danger of going away because of what this Paul's preaching, because of his deliverance ministry. Paul's deliverance ministry was, there's no life in that stupid thing, and I serve the living and true God that put life and spirit into you. And it changed the world. They turned the world upside down. You know what it said they did in Ephesus? They brought all their books of magic and burned them. They were ashamed of all that junk that they had been involved in, and the value was 50,000 pieces of silver. You know these things. Embrace these things. Paul and the apostles turned the world upside down because God went to war against the Gentiles. He was to be the light of the Gentiles. 
and he is with the Lord Jesus, and I uphold him. Jesus ascended back into heaven. What does the Bible tell us? Here's what it tells us. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. He changed the world. It was a war. We needed a war to be fought. We were stubbornly set in our ways that we were going to continue the traditions of our fathers and worship idols. But God will not give His glory to a graven image. And for whatever reason, because it seemed good in His sight, He chose you and He chose me. And we better get excited about it and happy that He came and delivered us from the citadel of the devil. First of all, by the one named Paul, Saul of Tar formerly Saul of Tarsus, and they glorified God in me. Verses 13 through 15. Do I, I don't need to tell you what jealousy is. God does not like you bowing down to some little piece of stone or wood. That's what the, he stirred up his jealousy. But there, there's another angle to this. He had sent his son into the world. And if you neglected his son, you were in the most serious trouble of all. When Paul stood on Mars Hill, he said, Now God's winked at your ignorance in times past. And you should be able to figure out from your own poets and just from pinching yourself that these idols of yours have no power. But I got one more thing I have to tell you. God raised his son from the dead because he's going to send his son to judge you Greeks. And that, that was his invitation at the end of Acts 17. I just love reading it over and over again to see Paul's method of preaching. But so this is a war, and it's for our good. The Lord had been a long time holding my peace. I hope you know the New Testament references. In times past, he winked at these things. He overlooked their ignorance in times past. Acts 14, Acts 17. But no longer. I'm going to waste what they've been trusting in. I don't care if they're big nations, small nations, large religions or small religions. I don't care about their incense and herbs. I don't care about their rivers, what they've relied on. I don't care about the sustenance. I will turn that religion upside down. Which brings us to the next section. More, much more has been said. What I am overlooking right now, not to bore anyone, are the 20 or 30 reasons why we keep the context of verses 1 through 12 through the second half of the chapter. What is the second half of the chapter about? What are these events of this war? Now, I've just, I've just presumed on you with verses 13 through 15 that it's the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ, and so the Gentiles heard truth for the first time in thousands of years. And that is what we can prove from this passage by a number of references. You know, the most important the most important decision in every chapter of Isaiah is, what is this event? Is this Sennacherib in Assyria? Or is it Cyrus in Babylon? Or is it Messiah in Rome? This one is Messiah in Rome. And the reason I want to take you back to Isaiah 6 is to say that when blindness is being dealt with, it extends all the way into the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. See, the Jews... He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Right. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. But do you know what the apostles did? They made the world knowledgeable about him. Our ancestors heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But he came into his own, the Jews, and they received him not until they were destroyed by Rome, which this chapter ends with. There, there's enough material on that subject. There's multiple pages of proofs to show you because it's, it's the most difficult part of studying Isaiah. What is the event? And you've got to remember that Isaiah bounces all over. He bounces all over. Think with me. Isaiah 6, it's Messiah and Jewish blindness. Isaiah 7, it's Assyria taking out Israel. Isaiah 9, it's back to Messiah. Isaiah 10, it's the long chapter about the axe and the saw of Sennacherib of Assyria. Isaiah 11, it's the ensign of the Gentiles, meaning Jesus, the son of David. It's just back and forth. And the once you make the decision, once you have a tsunami to say, this is about Messiah, well, then, then the hobbles come off. And you can run with the cross-references of the Bible. And there are so many cross-references for what I'm sharing with you right now of, of these verses through the end of the chapter once you make that decision and it doesn't fit anything else. This is about Gentiles and it's about Messiah's time and we just keep pressing that until we see a change. And we don't see a change in this chapter. Verse 16, And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. Who's blind here? Just to remind you of what we're doing, Gentiles. See, it's war, it's war against the Gentiles in 13 through 15. But there's going to be some he's going to pull out. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. They didn't know him. He, came into, he was in the world. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images that say to the molten images, Ye are our gods. They're going to be ashamed. They're going to turn back and be ashamed. Those two expressions go together. Where they're found in the Bible, it's someone turning away and saying, That's disgusting. No, I don't believe that anymore. It's not really direct repentance. It's that's disgusting and stupid. And they're ashamed of it. Burning all their books for 50,000 pieces. They loved having a bonfire in the streets of Ephesus to burn their books of magic. They tossed them. Now bring the blind by a way that, and we didn't know that way, and the Lord brought us. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. God didn't forsake the Gentiles. He forsook the Jews, but he has stayed with the Gent. How long was God even the nominal God of the Jews? 1,500 years. 2,000 years for us already. It's just, I will not forsake them. Verse 18, this is a change. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. It's another group of people. It's the Jews. And so I read to you verses 18 through 20. God condemned the Jews blind to preaching. He condemned them for being blind to preaching. Verse, 19, verse 18 again. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect? and blind is the Lord's servant, seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. Very simply, 
The dilemma that you should have in your mind is what in the world is verse 19 talking about? I'm telling you that he's addressing the Jews. He has switched from Gentiles to Jews. It should be rather obvious because look, if you look down at verse 24, he has jumped to Jacob and Israel as opposed to the Gentiles. And he's calling the group of people that are in verse 18 and 19, his servants and his messengers who think they are perfect and the Lord's servants, they're Jehovah's followers. That's the Jews. These are collective nouns for the Jews throughout verse 19. You say, why did he choose the word servant when he puts servant in verse 1 of this chapter and it's about the Lord Jesus Christ? For the obvious contrast that there was a group of people that outwardly and ceremoniously followed the Lord Jehovah, but when his son arrived in the scene, they did not see him. And could there be greater blindness than that? The followers of Jehovah, the children of Jehovah, from an outward national standpoint, cannot see the Lord Jesus Christ nor believe His glorious gospel. There's nobody as blind as the Jews. There never was anybody as blind as the Jews. There still isn't anyone as blind as the Jews. But the Jews of Jesus' day, with Jesus performing all those miracles in front of them, and they just refused Him and rejected Him. He said you can figure out the weather and you can forecast what it's going to be like tomorrow from the sky. But you can't see me. Because of Isaiah 6. That's why I wanted to start you with Isaiah 6. Go make the heart of this people fat. Shut up their eyes. Stop up their ears. So verse 19, my servant. That is a singular for the people of God of the Jews. They were his servants. Who served God in this world other than the Jews? No one. From, from a national standpoint, and you're deaf as my messenger. Who brought the word of God into this world? That those precious words that Adam told us about today, Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, tell us that those words were only given to the nation of Israel. And they had priests, and they had prophets, and they had priests and prophets that were his messenger, messengers, and the, they, the nation was a messenger of his. Who is blind is he that is perfect. Those Pharisees thought they were perfect. They... Do you remember some of their statements? What is this man? He's got no stuff. He hasn't been to school. He's got no learning. How does he know anything? We're not like the common people that are dumb and don't know the law. And Jesus once said to them after healing the man that was born blind, he said, you know, I caused the blind to see and the, and the see to be blind. And they, they said, are we blind? Because he never thought about being blind. They thought they knew everything. When you get over to Romans chapter 2, Paul said, thou, thou that callest thyself a Jew, yeah, you're the one that's instructing the law, and you know everything about the law, and you're able to tell everyone else in the world where they're wrong. Do you remember all this in the Bible? I hope. Right here. He that is perfect is blind. They thought they were perfect. They presumed that they were perfect, and they said they were perfect, and they knew everything, and blind is the Lord's servant. This is a collective noun. You know it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Can we follow the two-step two method of Bible interpretation? Let's first of all prove what it doesn't mean. Is Jesus the servant of verse 1 in verse 19, and he's blind? No. Then who is? The Jews. Why would he choose that word to make it exciting? Studying the Bible. Why would he choose the word servant in verse 1 and the word servant in verse 19 to give us gray hair? But he's always merciful. And when we try to exalt his son, he'll point it out to us. And verse 19, now it should be very plain to you. Who is blind but my servant, 
my nation of Israel and Jacob are so blind, they can't see anything. There's no one blind as them. The Gentiles, they have an excuse. They never heard. They haven't been taught anything. They're not my servants. They serve idols. Seeing many things, but thou observest not. Verse 20, opening the ears, but he heareth not. Did they see many things from the ministry of this Messiah that's been described in this chapter? Did they see many things, many miracles, and still couldn't believe? Did they hear many things that were pure truth? When they assaulted him with their questions, their most calculated questions to trip him in Matthew chapter 22, did he answer them in such a way that they purposed among themselves, we're never going to do that again because right. we just got shamed in front of the whole nation. Do you understand this text? We're just following the context through about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, God upholding him, God blessing him. You know we're going to run into chapters where it says that God's going to give him the spirit of wisdom. We've already fell upon some of these. And he's going to be able to speak a word to silence his enemies. That's God condemning the Jews blind to preaching, and they were also blind to their punishment, which is verse 21. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivereth. For a spoil, and none saith. Restore! Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he hath poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it hath set him on fire round about. Yet he knew not, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. Did the burning up of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. bring Jews to repentance? No, it did not. They saw many things in verse 20, but they didn't observe them and understand them. They heard many things, but they refused them. Verse 21, the Lord Jehovah, in sending Jesus into this world, was well pleased for his righteousness sake. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I have the most perfect righteous transaction that I'm going to bring about with my Jews with my Jewish nation and with the Gentiles. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. This is what we heard from about from Psalm 119. Right. Jesus Christ and his apostles magnified the law and made it honorable in the world. The Jews, the Jews carried it around. They wore it and they kissed it, but they didn't follow it and they didn't obey it and they didn't exalt it, but the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ did. The Lord is well pleased for His righteousness' sake. He, he judged Israel with blindness. Remember in chapter 6? Make their hearts fat. It's His judgment. It was a righteous judgment. Amen. To go and save those that had never thought of Him, that was righteous mercy. And He did it through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is well pleased for His righteousness' sake. He is righteous in this whole transaction and shift from the Jews to the Gentiles, from I will fulfill my covenant with the Jews, but I am going to be a light to the Gentiles, and I'm going to leave them in darkness. He will magnify the law. That deserves a half a sermon. He will magnify the law. Did Jesus Christ keep the law perfectly? Did Jesus Christ explain the law perfectly in the Sermon on the Mount? 
Did Jesus Christ fulfill the penalty of the law? Did Jesus Christ die a hanging death, which was the curse of the law? He, unbelievable. This should be, you listen, you, you shouldn't get over your shouting. The Lord is well pleased for His righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Right. Do you know what we just did in this service? And what we've done so far today in the back with Adam here singing, preaching, listening. We consider God's words honorable. Amen. And we magnify them. Right. How's he done that? By sending his servant and upholding him. And he would not fail nor be discouraged because there were so few Gentiles. Amen. Because there was us. Right. Let's always be his us. Amen. Let's always be his ones that make his word honorable but this is a people robbed and spoiled now this is looking ahead you say but it's got the past tense do you want to argue anything in the book of isaiah from a verb tense be very careful with that okay you're still questioning me just flip back to chapter 41 The, the one we did a few weeks ago when I was with you. Verse 2. Who raised up the righteous man from the east? That's 150 years away. That's Cyrus the Persian. The past tense is used here, but it's looking forward to this blindness ending, just like Isaiah 6 gave it to us. Remember Isaiah 6? I read it for a purpose. Verses 9 through 13. The Jews were going to be blind all the way through their desolation, destruction, and scattering everywhere by the Romans. And so that is this right here because we're following it right through and we're seeing the Lord Jesus Christ sent to the Jews first and then by his apostles to the Gentiles. Some of the Gentiles believe were saved from idolatry. The Jews were blinded and there was no blindness like theirs ever in the history of the world. And they still, they couldn't understand the preaching and they didn't understand why they were judged so many times and why they were judged by the Romans. This is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes. Listen, they had publicans running all over the place collecting taxes for the Romans. Why were David, and why was Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem of David to pay taxes? They were being robbed and spoiled by the Romans. They're all of them snared in holes. They sure were during the siege. And they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey and none delivereth. But if this was Babylon, there was a deliverer. It was Cyrus. And none saith, restore. Because, see, there was a restorer of them when they were in Babylon. This is Rome. It was permanent and final. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Are there any of you Jews that are going to have enough sense that you're going to hear what's coming and you're going to change? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Do you think this is chance? Do you think this is just political upheaval? Who gave Jacob for a spoil in Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? Notice it jumps back to Isaiah. For they would not walk in his ways. It jumps to another group of Jews. Neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he, that is the Lord, hath poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. And it hath set him on fire round about, yet he knew not. And it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. There's a singular male pronoun for Israel and for Jacob, just like he was called the servant singular and the message singular in verse 19. They didn't listen to the preaching and they didn't listen to the judgment. There were the Romans. The Romans knew that God had sent them. 
Titus knew that God had sent him. It was too obvious that God was in the matter to exterminate from the earth the most wicked generation of men that have ever lived. Just like the Bible says. We don't need Josephus. We don't need to hear the words of Titus because we have the words of the Word of God. The most wicked generation ever. They couldn't get the preaching and they couldn't get the punishment because God had given them over after 1,500 years and we are now 2,000 years strong with the Lord of glory. Amen. What's the, what, should we, what should be the result of us? We should love preaching. We should look in our lives when we see adversity and God's chastening hand and repent. And at all times, we should be shouting praise and lifting up our voice and shouting. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.